Americans were already suspicious and distrusting of electoral outcomes. And so, um, I mean, my, my, my sense about Trump is that he's adding a little bit to that distrust on the Republican side, but it was already there. You know, in 2012, I asked um, voters after the election, do you believe that essentially words to the effect, um, do you believe that the um, the result was rigged or not? I mean, it, it was it, that, that's what I was getting to. And so 35 percent of Republicans responded that they believe that the election was stolen from Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney is the um, antithesis of, of, of Donald Trump. And so my guess is that, um, you know, more Republicans should Trump lose in 2020 will say it was stolen from Trump. Nonetheless, um, there's already a base there on the Republican side to say um, they was robbed and Democrats in 2016, supporters of Hillary Clinton said that she was robbed. And so um, that, that, that sense is already there in the electorate. Donald Trump is adding a little bit to it, but it didn't start with Donald Trump. And um, I'm pretty certain that it will continue after Donald Trump. This November's elections are more important than any I can remember in my lifetime. And that includes when I was on the ballot. Attorney General William Barr is casting doubt on large-scale mail-in voting. Thousands waited hours to cast ballots, and frustration was evident. Election officials say it's important for voters to make their voices heard without jeopardizing everyone's health and safety, so they are making some last-minute changes. And we still have zero precincts reporting. We've just gotten a statement in from the Iowa Democratic Party. I'm going to read you this statement. State and federal officials now rethinking how to hold an election during an outbreak. Today is August 13, 2020. There are 82 days until the election. But our story doesn't start in Iowa, New Hampshire, or even Florida. We begin in Belarus. That's Alexander Lukashenko, and last Sunday he won the Belarusian presidential election. For the sixth time. Yes, you heard that right. Six. In what's being called a fraudulent election, Lukashenko, often called Europe's last dictator, won by a landslide, securing 80% of the vote. However, watchdog groups have shown that Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, Lukashenko's opponent, actually won 80% of the vote. So, who actually won? Well, definitely not Lukashenko, but he's still in office. For many developing countries, authoritarian leaders continue to capitalize on archaic systems of counting votes to misconstrue popular opinion. Fortunately, in the U.S. Donald Trump is falsely claiming he only lost the popular vote because millions voted illegally for Hillary Clinton. U.S. officials say that they have no reason to believe the Russian cyber attacks will stop. The president receiving poor marks for job approval and he's trailing Joe Biden by double digits. There's a lot of fraudulent voting going on in this country. President Trump has openly floated an idea uh, that has never happened in this country's history, that is, delaying the presidential election. I don't want to see a crooked election. This election will be the most rigged election in history. Oh, wait. Free and fair elections are a hallmark of American democracy. And that's why it took us centuries to give everyone the right to vote, supposedly. Samuel Adams, the man himself, once said, let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God and his country. 
Beautiful words, considering half of Americans didn't even show up to vote in the last presidential election. But seriously, there's a big problem with voting in America. Actually, there are several. And with this pandemic changing every facet of our livelihood, you can bet that this election is going to be impacted. If you thought Bush v. Gore was bad, grab your popcorn and have it ready for this November. This upcoming election won't look like any other. And that is what we are going to be talking about today. This is an episode about the Postal Service, waiting in lines, voter roll purging, waiting in lines, polling, waiting in lines, and waiting in lines. You are listening to the Finch Podcast. The winner of the last election was actually abstaining. 80 million people of voting age decided not to vote. That's more people than either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton got. And that's certainly more people than Belarus. So before we talk about the problems with voting, let's just talk about voting straight up. In most states, on the first Tuesday after a Monday in November, the majority of people who do decide to vote head to physical polls and vote. Well, most people, and most years. But 20% of people voted by mail in 2016. In Oregon and Washington, nearly everyone votes by mail. Regardless, the votes are tallied up. And if you're wondering how they are tallied up, you can call up the leading national expert in voting machines. I'm uh, Juan Gilbert. I'm the chair of the computer science department at the University of Florida. And as department chair, I run the department, oversee activities, hiring, uh, student organizations, etc. I'm also a faculty member as a department chair. And as a faculty member, I have a research lab with PhD students and undergrads. And we do research projects on AI, um, voting technologies, uh, generally speaking, human-centered computing things, uh, interfaces and designs. So we have an active research group and I've uh, been doing this for a very long time now, over 20 years, and uh, it's, been, it's been very rewarding. That was Juan Gilbert, the Andrew Banks Family Preeminence Endowed Chair and Chair of the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Department at the University of Florida. Juan knows his way around the ballot box, and he uses his background in computer sciences to tackle modern societal issues. But more on that later. This was him in a congressional testimony on election security earlier this year, talking about a voting machine his team has invented. Chairperson Lofgren, Ranking Member Davis, members of the committee, I am honored to share with you my expertise in voting system security, accessibility, and usability. I have worked in elections for more than 15 years conducting research, developing innovative technologies, and conducting studies with various election stakeholders. In 2003, I created Prime 3. So what's so special about the Star Trek signing machine? Well, Prime 3, in many respects, is like... Um, the seed for a lot of things that have happened. So let me explain how it works. So Prime 3, again, is software, it's, off, it's uh, open source, and it runs on what we call COPS, commercial off-the-shelf components. So we can go to Best Buy or somewhere, and we buy tablets and printers and uh, QR code scanners or whatever, and we can build a machine out of that. So essentially the way it works is Prime 3 allows you to vote by touch and or voice. So you have a headset and a microphone, you have a touch screen, and you can touch the screen, or you can have a switch. So you had the headphones on it and speak to you, and you can hit select or next on a switch, or you can respond by voice. So it would say something like, uh, to vote for Bugs Bunny, say vote, and you say vote. 
So even if I'm eavesdropping on you, I don't know who you voted for because you don't say Bugs Bunny, you, you respond to the prompt. And then once you make your selections, it, you review them and then it prints a ballot uh, with those selections. And that ballot is the ballot of record and that ballot is what goes into the ballot box and that ballot is what counted. And so the way we designed it, it works off the shelf. It can work online, meaning for uh, one Butler County, Ohio uses it as their accessible absentee system where voters uh, can mark the ballot using their screen reader and print it and mail it in. So it, it's very flexible from that respect. Now, current systems, there are ballot, these just systems are generally called ballot marking devices. And so ballot marking devices allow you to touch and make selections and then print a ballot in some form or another. And so there are multiple ballot marking devices on the market now that you will see. Now you know more about voting machines than you ever thought you would. In most countries, that's where it ends. But America has this really fancy system that works 100% of the time. Okay, five times it didn't work. Okay, twice out of the last five elections, it hasn't worked. We call it... college. Will recorded that, by the way. You're welcome. Here's how that works. Every state is designated a number based on its population, plus two senators. Georgia has 14 congressmen, plus two senators, so 16 electoral votes. Whoever wins the state's popular vote gets all of those electoral votes, except Maine and Nebraska, who allocate electoral votes based on the popular vote. The magic number is 270. If you get that, you're the president. Just to be clear, it's not based off the popular vote. In fact, you could win the Electoral College with just 23% of the nation supporting you. I know, right? And if it seems unfair that you could win an election with only a fraction of the people, remember that for decades in our nation's history, only property-owning white males could vote. About a century after America's birth, African-American men were given the right to vote with the passage of the 15th Amendment. And just 100 years ago, half of America's population was finally given the right to vote with the passage of the 19th Amendment granting women suffrage. But we know that being able to vote on paper did not mean you were actually able to vote. Through the insidious passage of literacy tests, grandfather clauses, obtuse identification criteria and poll taxes, and the literal physical and verbal abuse of authorities, African Americans fought for their right to vote well into the 1960s, nearly 100 years after they were granted to, on paper. And to a large extent, the battle isn't over. George Carlin famously said that if you don't vote, you lose the right to complain. And while many people choose not to vote, Countless others simply cannot. Voter suppression remains rampant. Here's how. First, voter registration. 49 states require Americans to register before casting a ballot. That makes sense, but the process of registration is actually incredibly cumbersome. Many states have proof of residency requirements, which makes registration for college students extremely difficult. In Georgia, then-Secretary of State Brian Kemp placed over 50,000 voter registrations on a pending status simply because of misspellings or missing hyphens. By the way, 70% of these were African Americans. One in seven voting age Americans are not registered. That's about 36 million Americans. Next, ID requirements. 10 states require you to show a government-issued ID before you can vote. 
However, 11% of Americans do not have these IDs, and they are predominantly students, people of color, and low-income Americans. Returning to Georgia, the state tossed hundreds of ballots because the signatures did not exactly match the ones on record, mainly African-American and Asian-American voters. Then, voter intimidation. Today, it looks a little different from burning crosses, but it's still alive. This is the magical Negro, Oprah Winfrey, asking you to make my fellow Negress, Stacey Abrams, the governor of Georgia. Other intimidation tactics include putting up false flyers stating that ICE would detain and deport anyone without an ID, and workers harassing voters at polling stations, an example being a poll worker saying to an African American, maybe if I'd worn my blackface makeup today, you would comprehend what I'm saying to you. And yeah, that actually happened. Between 2014 and 2016, over 16 million people were removed from the polls, and every cycle, this number increases around 4 million. Bear in mind that every election in modern American history has been between these margins. And sure, purging makes sense if your aunt moves to Guatemala or your great-great-great-great-grandfather passes away. But in Georgia, where African Americans are removed from voter rolls at one and a quarter times the rate white Americans are, there is much more at play. You can literally show up to a polling location and get turned away because you haven't voted in the past two elections. Then, there's voter confusion. This one is pretty self-explanatory. The U.S. doesn't have a succinct way of voting. So between requesting ballots, navigating which license to use, ensuring you're on the rolls, going to vote in a new election every few months, changing addresses, signatures, what have you, it gets mucky really quickly. The fact that the United States does not have one standardized method of voting is actually beneficial. Uh, the reason we have a system the way we do now is because of states' individual rights. States have the right to decide on how uh, people vote. Now, in a uniform voting environment, uh, it makes it easier for an adversary to do something bad. Because if everybody's voting the same way, if I put a virus, for example, on one machine, I could populate it throughout the whole United States and I got everybody. So the diversity of our voting systems it provides us some sense of security uh, as well. So you have pros and cons on both sides of this, but the reason being is just states have that right. There is no federalized control over elections in the United States. But it can be very detrimental, especially in times of turmoil. We have never in the history of American voting seen such um, dramatic and rapid shift in how Americans vote. That's Charles Stewart III. He's a Keenan Sahin Distinguished Professor of Political Sciences at MIT. He's also the MIT lead for the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project and the co-founder of the Stanford MIT Healthy Elections Project. I'm a political science professor at MIT. I've um, been here um, since 1985 um, and um, you know, a native Georgian um, uh, and um, you know, started off in political science and um, I've been teaching here since 1985, as I said. I, I study a couple of things, um, um, congressional politics for a long, long time, and then election administration. So the Stanford-MIT Healthy Elections Project is a joint effort of myself and um, Professor Nate Persley, who's a law professor at, um, at Stanford. Um, both of us have um, a real interest in seeing this election um, pulled off in a um, clean, accessible, legitimate way. Um, we know what the high stakes are already, even without COVID. Um, COVID makes it even more difficult to run an election really, really well. 
and run it in a way that gives access to everybody and um, allows voters to believe that um, the outcome was legitimate. Um, it, I mean, it arose um, from an observation that there was already a lot of activism around the election. There was already a lot of litigation around the election. But one of the things that was missing in terms of you know, groups that were organized was really kind of a logistics um, slash administrative approach to trying to um, trying to get through this election in one piece. And so um, what we've been doing is, is we've been doing research on both campuses to try to both identify best practices and to um, publicize them on our we website, healthyelections.org. Um, um, so we're doing our own research, um, looking at um, the outcome and the conduct of the primaries right now. We're finishing that, that research, um, at least the presidential primaries. There's about to be a bunch of state primaries. And we're just trying to understand how the states did in that early round of voting um, with an idea of seeing how things might be in November. We also have a number of partners. Um, most of these partners are academics or in the civic tech, um, I'm sorry, in the civic tech space. Um, they've developed um, tools and approaches to um, voting in person, to voting by mail that have been proven successful. And um, we're working to try to encourage more of that work, encourage the integration of that work with um, election officials and um, in general, um, trying to um, you know, help ensure both through research and through practice that best practices are utilized um, in the election. We're not quite done talking about modern disenfranchisement methods, but don't worry, you'll hear a lot more from Charles. There are only two states that allow those incarcerated to vote, Maine and Vermont. In 14 states, convicts are barred from voting while incarcerated. In 22 states, convicts are barred from voting while incarcerated and a little while after, too. In 12 states, mainly in the South, if you're convicted for anything, you'll never vote again. Each election, that amounts to around 6 million people not being able to vote. Allowing prisoners the right to vote may seem pretty radical, but it's actually pretty reasonable. The US is one of only four democracies in the world that doesn't allow ex-convicts and convicts alike to vote. When you consider the fact that African Americans, while only constituting 13% of the population, make up nearly 40% of the prison population and voted 90% Democrat in the last general, conservative adamacy to allowing the prison vote makes much more sense. There is a fine line between voter suppression and election security. Historically, conservatives have edged on the latter, while liberals have pushed for expanded voting accessibility. In the latest election, the Trump administration is urging more stringent signature matching, ballot application delays, and limitations as to when and where ballots can be counted in several Democratic states. Both access and security are critical in an election, but Professor Stewart is weary of an overextension on either front. Yeah, you know, if you talk to the people who favor um, more stringent security measures, um, they will tell you that, um, you know, it's to guard the franchise. And um, actually, I, I, I take most of those people at their word. And as a political scientist, I know two things. One is that, um, what, one is that Americans just disagree about the relative balance of two fundamental values here. And one is security of the ballot, and the other is access to the ballot. 
And this shows up in every public opinion study that I've ever done and other people have done. You can ask voters um, questions like, do you agree that, do you believe that voting is a right or do you believe it's a privilege? Um, you can ask um, voters um, if you had to trade off making voting more accessible or more secure, where would you fall along this continuum? There's a number of ways of asking this question. And um, not surprisingly, conservatives tend to fall on the side of making things secure. Liberals tend to, to fall on the side of access, which is true of every other policy area that we talk about. So in that sense, voting is no different, right? If we were talking about welfare policy, same thing. Medical policy, same thing. Food stamps, same thing. You name it, it's the same thing. Education, same thing. So in that sense, um, you know, this is where I think the professor is going to disagree a bit with some more um, um, citizen groups, for instance, where I just say, I, it just, to me, to begin with, looks like it's a policy disagreement that comes out of sincere values and political beliefs that are, um, that are unconnected with um, strategy or suppression. Okay, so that's one thing I know. The other thing I know is that these laws do not fall um, equally on all voters. Um, what we know is that there are suppressive effects of, of these laws. We do know that um, um, with um, whether they be ID laws or signature matching laws or other laws that regulate access to the polls that people of color, poor people, people with low education, underserved communities are gonna be more likely to be negatively affected by them. Um, and that's absolutely true. Um, and, um, and I think you can, I, and I think you can hold these two beliefs simultaneously myself, which is that, which is that um, by and large, um, most people hold these sincere political beliefs and that there are suppressive effects of these, of these laws. The final thing I will say is that um, I have a special category though for political elites. And that is um, state, you know, like state legislators and other people like that, who is my, my experience, I think actually do um, approach these laws more from the perspective of, will this hurt, help my side? Will this hurt my side? And I think Democrats and Republicans both do this. The Democrats have a belief that, you know, so back to these discussions about, you know, does vote by mail help Democrats or Republicans. I do think that Democrats believe that the easier it is to vote, the better it is for Democrats. And not surprisingly, Republicans agree with them. Um, despite the fact that the evidence suggests that to the degree that might be true, we're talking about very small numbers. Just as an aside, voter fraud is a fraud. Out of 1.6 million votes cast in 2016 in Iowa, there were a whopping 10 allegations of voter fraud, which prompted Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate to say, we've experienced widespread voter fraud. No, you didn't, Paul. No, you didn't. 
Voter registration shortcomings, identification requirements, voter intimidation, voter roll purging, voter confusion, and the convict vote absent are all hallmarks of a conventional election. This is what happens in a normal year. But this isn't a normal year. This is what the historians call a masked election. The last time we had an election during a major pandemic, turnout was 10% lower than expected, and as much as 6% of people died in the weeks afterwards in some communities. And Warren G. Harding was tweeting like crazy. Not really, but it's a fun image to have. There are four more big methods of voter suppression we are going to look at for this year in particular, and three of them have already made quite a name for themselves. We said this episode was going to be about long lines, and you're not going to be disappointed. By analyzing data from 10 million smartphones, researchers at UCLA found that voters in predominantly black neighborhoods waited 29% longer on average and were 74% more likely to wait more than half an hour compared to those in predominantly white neighborhoods. The ACLU estimates that in 2012, 500 to 700,000 people were deterred from voting because of long lines. Interestingly, average wait times have decreased across the nation, but long wait lines remain extremely burdensome, particularly during a pandemic. But remember how we said Juan likes to problem solve? With respect to COVID and in-person voting, uh, that is a serious issue. So we're working on a potential solution and um, you're going to be the first to hear about what we're doing. And once I get this done, we're going to uh, share it with Georgia and everyone. So here it is, Alex and William. You go to vote and you're in line and the line's getting long. So then at the, the end of that line, at the beginning of the line, I should say, at the uh, ver voter verification desk, there's a laptop and a printer. And so the poll workers have been recording how long it takes for the next person in line to go vote. So when you're up to vote, how long do you have to wait? And they find out it takes, um, I don't know, let's say 10 minutes. And then they open up this application, they put in 10 minutes and they say, we got uh, 50 people online. And then that setup will print what's called 50 voter pass tickets. Each ticket is going to have a QR code and underneath it's going to say, please return at a particular time and your ID is some ID. And they're just going to go down the line and hand out these tickets and then people can go wherever they want, do whatever they want, and they come back at that time and they vote. So you don't have to stand in line any longer. In other words, I get a ticket that tells me when I'm supposed to vote and I come back, I scan it at this station and say, yep, this is the right time, the right ticket, you can vote. Sometimes the lines are bad because there simply aren't enough places to vote. In the Kentucky primary last month, one polling center alone was established for over 600,000 voters. And in the past year, Georgia has shut down 10 polling centers, all of which are in predominantly black counties in the lead up to the general election. And then sometimes there are enough polling stations, but they close too early. What happens if you're in line and you've been waiting quite some time to vote when the cutoff happens? Well, if it was a roller coaster, you'd be out of luck, but thankfully this isn't like that. If you're registered to vote and you're online waiting, you will be able to exercise your right as an American to have your say as to who we make captain of the ship. Unfortunately, that's not always true. In that Kentucky primary, hundreds of voters were prevented access to voting after the center locked their doors. All in all, 3% of those intending to vote were dissuaded by long lines, inadequate polling centers, or early poll closures in 2016. And then, if you're able to register and then find a polling center and then wait in line, 
you might come across this. The state's electronic voting machines have switched their votes. The NAACP says this could be a case of voter suppression, but election officials say it's the result of old machines and heavy turnout. But actually, more often than not, the machines aren't the problem. For starters, it would be very, very difficult to manipulate the results of the machines. So whenever you hear those kind of allegations, the first thing I say is, is the machine network. If it's not, then tell me how Russia's going to hack the machine. Okay, they're going to send someone there and they have to hack into the machine. Well, let's talk about that. In order to do that, I have to understand the operating system, the language is written in, and I have to replace it or modify it in such a way that the footprint of that is unchanged. That's a lot of technical expertise, a lot of time to be spent editing the software on each machine and doing that in person, that's, that's a lot. Florida in 2000, one of the most infamous, infamous cases. Where are the cases with the machines? So to, you go and try and find them. So the cases like in, in Georgia was more about lines and things like that. California had lines as well. And you'll find a lot of that has to do with just you know, people weren't trained on how to do those things. The problem seems to be us, victory for the computers. Well, the reliability is actually really good. In Georgia, the primary issue wasn't necessarily that the machines were malfunctioning. It was that poll workers didn't know how to set them up. They weren't properly trained. There was a huge training gap as far as how to use the machines and set them up and how they work and things like that. So th that was number one. Then you have issues if a machine does malfunction. What's the remedy? Do you replace it, reset it, or something like that? Again, that's training. So from, from what I've seen the use of this technology, we haven't had severe problems uh, with this technology. Poll workers in a normal year are often undertrained. Only 30 states require that poll workers receive training at all. And that's not even the biggest problem. A majority of poll workers are over 61 years of age. 80% of those killed by COVID-19 are 65 or older. In 2016, two-thirds of precincts had trouble finding poll workers, according to Pew. It's especially bad in swing states. In April, Wisconsin reported having no poll workers in 111 precincts scheduled for election night. Finding poll workers was already difficult, but with the typical workforce out of service, local governments face a tall task of stocking up. Poll workers are the backbone of any election, and they'll be the nervous system in this one. Um, the election really relies on um, poll workers who are normal citizens. You know, it's about a million people work the polls on election day. So it's the largest single day outpouring of kind of patriotic volunteerism we have in the country. And historically, most of those folks have been older, over 60, more um, vulnerable to COVID. So I do think that, so, so I would also end not just sort of a general appeal, but a specific appeal to young people to get involved in not only voting, but also in, um, you know, in, in working the administration side of the election to make sure that actually is, is carried out. To remedy in-person voting, many states are turning to mail-in voting, except Oregon and Washington, nothing new for those guys. The rest of the nation, however, feels trapped. Trapped between. Do you believe that an election conducted mainly by mail can be secure? Personally, no. And Donald Trump has been making this distinction between, you know, voting by mail and absentee is that voting by mail is 
rife with corruption. But I gotta say, I mean, you can, you can criticize vote by mail all you want to for on a variety of reasons, but I don't know of anyone that has argued that Washington, Oregon, Colorado, the longest standing vote by mail states are corrupt electoral environments. <clears throat> um, in fact, exactly the opposite. I think people view those three states as really well-run states and places with very little male corruption. So President Trump just keeps trying, keeps um, digging a hole. I don't think that's the point. I don't think he's trying to win any um, points for getting election administration right. I think he's trying to um, perhaps provide an excuse for why he loses when he loses. Um, and if it had been other circumstances, he would blame those circumstances, I'm sure. To understand why the president and Republicans are worried about mail-in, you've got to understand how it works. Then you've got to understand that they shouldn't be worried in the first place. What does it take to vote by mail? Well, it's more than just simply kind of going down and you know, I got some envelopes, I got a, got a mimeograph machine, I'm gonna run me off some, some ballots and throw them in, a, in some envelopes and mail them out. Um, you know, that's not how it works, although sometimes they listen to President Trump and Attorney General Barr, you would think that that's sort of how it, how it runs. But no, I mean, to, to run a really well-organized mail ballot system, you need automation. You need information systems. You need procedures. Um, you know, you you need you need a a logistical model to marshal a lot of moving parts. And I think that that's the real challenge right now that most states and localities are going through is is turning on a dime. I mean, it really is. I mean, take your metaphor, like you know, turning a turning a battleship in a bathtub or something. I mean, it's just really really tight and really hard and really complicated, really complicated. And it's not all gonna work out, um, you know, the way that you would want it. In the 2016 election, 20% of Americans voted by mail. Roughly half of those ballots were cast in about five states. Um, um, three, um, three of them were, were all vote by mail, Oregon, Washington, Colorado. And two others had um, permanent absentee lists such that something like 80% voted by mail. That was California and Arizona. So really in 2016, one of five Americans voted by mail, mostly in, this, in a small handful of states. What we are seeing right now is in the other 45 or so states, we're seeing voting by mail expand by um, an order of magnitude, in some cases close to two orders of magnitude. Um, so a state like, um, well, a state like Georgia, which in the past would have had about three, 4% of ballots cast by mail in um, the primaries in the spring, you know, it was what, somewhere up around half um, approximately, and you go state by state by state by state, and you get the same sort of thing. Mail-in voting has no political preference. In fact, the GOP has one of the most sophisticated mail-in voting systems. Why aren't they using it? It's unclear. Many pundits are confused as well. The move could severely backfire on the Trump administration, but of course, we've heard that one before.
I don't know why it disadvantages Republicans. Um, I mean, just on the face of it, I don't know why it disadvantages Republicans. Now, having said that, it is true that Democrats believe that um, voting by mail is, is good for them, it seems. They've certainly pushed it. And Republicans have believed that it's bad for them. Now, why is that? I think it's an. I think the reason for that is a, a historical accident. The historical accident is the election of two thousand eight. In two thousand eight, the Obama campaign decided that, for strategic reasons, it was going to target states that allowed early voting. So, both early voting in person and no excuse absentee voting that the Obama campaign would target those states to try to get their supporters to vote as early as possible in order to make election day get out the vote efforts less expensive and less high stakes. So in 2008, um, and it worked, of course, I mean, you probably heard that, um, that Barack Obama won. And um, so um, it was taken to be, um, well, this is, this is the way Democrats win, is by turning out their base early on. And um, 2012, they continued, continued again. We're sort of getting out on, in Republican legal circles that early voting was a Democratic thing. And, um, and eventually kind of this partisan divide began to form. Now, if you look at the numbers, the numbers don't bear bear any of this out that Democrats are favored by um, mail balloting. In the um, research that I did, for instance, public opinion research I did in the 2016 election, there's virtually no partisan difference in Democrats and Republicans um, using mail ballots. Um, so just, you know, numerically, it doesn't work. On the face of it, I don't know what about mail disadvantages Republicans. Um, you know, if we were talking about this 10 years ago, we would have been talking about uh, mail advantaging Republicans because back in the original um, traditional absentee ballot laws, it was Republicans who were more likely to use um, absentee law um, ballots because it was predominantly college students and businessmen out of town traveling. College students who were out of town tended to be um, um, white and wealthy, so um, Republican and businessmen, white, wealthy Republicans. And so, um, so you know, the world has changed now with um, mail ballot laws such that Republicans are no longer advantaged by them. But that's different from saying that Democrats are now advantaged by them. The party that's advantaged by these laws is the party that takes advantage of them for strategic reasons. And the Republicans could do this as well. Indeed, if you read what Republican um, campaign strategists are saying, um, they plan to try to use mail balloting to their advantage too. So um, I, I think it's unfortunate that um, President Trump has, um, um, has really kind of cranked up the, the partisanship on this because empirically, I, I mean, that there is no basis of this. Um, and by challenging mail ballots, um, you know, you're putting people's health at risk. There's one final element of mail-in voting which has analysts worried. Other than the fact that Trump has placed a figurehead in charge of the Postal Service, there is an element of mail-in voting, by design, which is cause for concern. And once again, it's not the machine's fault. It's those pesky teens. So absentee, let's walk through how that works so everyone understands. 
Um, so when you say that you're gonna vote absentee, you have to register to vote absentee in most states. And they know to send, they send you a ballot and you can mark that ballot. And for people with disabilities and others, they could do it online, print it. But anyway, you have the envelope that you will put your ballot in and you have to sign uh, an envelope and send it back. So what happens is they, can, they do what's called signature verification to verify that signature against your signature they have on file. And then once they do that, they throw the envelope in a batch of envelopes that is, you can't tell whose is whose. So then they put them all together and they open them up and then they scan or tally them. So there's not a high risk of security vulnerability with that model, but the problem is signature verification. And for people in your demographic, your age group, we just saw a problem with this in Florida. One of my peers in political science, Dr. Dan Smith, uh, noticed that there were a significant number of absentee ballots or mail-in ballots rejected because of signature verification. And disproportionately that affects younger people because you didn't grow up signing a lot. Uh, and so people who don't sign a lot don't have a consistent signature and guess what, this will impact them. So what will this mean for the future of mail-in? What's it gonna mean for the future? Well, that, you know, that's a really good question for the following reason. I think that a lot of what we're seeing right now is being done, and by that I mean the expansion of voting by mail. I think a lot of it is being done under kind of emergency circumstances. Um, I mean, again, take take this, the, the state of Georgia um, as a random example. Um, you know, um, the you know the encouragement to vote by mail in the primary was an admittedly one-off um, affair. Um, and, you know, like the mailing of, of, of applications to voters, those sorts of things that were done in many, many states in the primary are not going to be done in the general election. Many states are flexing their laws and saying this is for one time only. Many states, for instance, which require an excuse to vote an absentee ballot are saying we will consider concern over COVID to be enough to count for a medical excuse, okay? But when this is happening, it's oftentimes um, being done um, explicitly on an emergency basis. And one of the ways in which, especially Republican lawmakers have been um, brought along is by making it clear that this is a one-time only shot. So I don't know what, you know, what it's likely to be after 2020. I think we can count on people learning how to um, vote by mail and more voters voting by mail in the future. But, um, you know, President Trump's opposition has certainly soured many Republicans to voting by mail. All right, Professor Stewart. So at the end of the day, who wins? Should Americans vote by mail or in person? The risk with voting in person, I'd say there are three big risks with voting in person in normal times. Uh, those risks are that um, you'll encounter a polling place that's poorly run, that um, you might um, discover that your name is not on the voter registration roll, or that you might be confused by the ballot, or there might be some other tabulation problem such that um, the mark you made on the ballot um, doesn't reflect 
what you wanted or doesn't even record your vote at all. So those are, those are, those are the primary risks from, from voting in person. I've done some research in this area and it looks like in a um, general election between two and 3% of all voters who go to vote in person, one way or the other don't have that ballot counted either because you know they leave because the line was too long or because there's something wrong with registration or this is the hidden one because they accidentally undervoted or overvoted and um that um that mistake wasn't wasn't counted okay um we add on top of that in 2020 of course that voting in person you're in contact with other people and you don't know where they've been so there's a health risk in 2020. Voting by mail. Voting by mail is, um, I would say, of course, in 2020, less of a health risk, but it is, as always, more of an administrative risk. And um, the way to see that is just, first of all, to recognize that voting by mail is, from the voter's perspective, and probably from the election, election administrator's perspective, at least twice as complicated as voting in person. And it gives you at least twice as many opportunities to mess up unintentionally and have your desire to vote thwarted. So in the case of mail balloting, for instance, if you have to request a, an absentee ballot, well, um, maybe your mailed in request doesn't make it to the um, election office. Maybe when it gets to the election office, it gets lost. Maybe when the ballot um, gets sent to you, it gets lost in the mail. Maybe when you send the marked ballot back to the election office, it gets marked lost in the mail. All those things I just mentioned are fairly rare, but they do happen, they're countable. Um, but then once that marked ballot gets back, depending on where you live in the country, there's between a one and in some cases, 3% chance that your ballot will be rejected by the election office. Maybe your signature doesn't match what's on file. Maybe your signature is there. Maybe you put your birth date, um, you used um, two digits for the year and the statute requires four digits for the year. Um, who knows, but you can have your ballot rejected for that reason. And then if you've made a mistake on your ballot, it's going to be even less likely that it's going to be pointed out to you when it goes through the tabulator. So there's more going on on the mail side administratively. And there are more things that happen outside of the voter's eyeshot, eyesight than um, in person. And so, um, you know, there it looks like order of magnitude, like maybe four, between three and 4% of male voters will have their intention to vote thwarted because of something along the sequence of events won't, won't turn out quite right. So on the whole, I mean, the, the, um, the risks I think are relatively low. Um, they should be lower and there are things that could be done to make them lower. But um, there is a bit of a kind of administrative risk. We have, to, we have to acknowledge when people vote by mail. Election analysts remain hopeful that election malfunctioning in Georgia and delayed results in Iowa could remain a thing of the primaries. 
If we make the necessary adjustments, the general election could operate smoothly. However, assuming everything goes right, everyone is registered, ID laws and long lines do not deter anyone, the machines work, the polling stations stay open, and the workers are adequately trained, there still remains one hurdle to America's idealistic free and fair elections. The bedrock of our democracy is the idea that voters can choose their own representatives. One person, one vote. But what if politicians change the system so severely that it's the representatives who effectively choose their own voters? where the politicians use sophisticated technology to gerrymander voting districts so obscenely that one party rarely worries about losing. 2020 is more than a presidential election. Congressional seats are up for the taking. And when districts are involved, all Elridge Gary is ready to roll. Gerrymandering is an art. By splitting up districts in very deliberate patterns, lawmakers are able to mold constituents to match their bases. In this partisan environment, we have to assume that um, districting will follow partisan mandates when um, it's allowed. That's American history. That's American history in the 1870s, 1880s. That's been American history in recent years. Why does this matter? Well, lawmakers pull out their exacto knives every 10 years when the census strikes. And if you can't take a hint, it's a census year. So making sure everyone is accurately recorded this year will be critical for every election until 2030. That's a long time. We are supposed to be on Mars by then. So make sure you fill out your census if you haven't already. The Trump administration has ordered the Census Bureau to wrap up operations one month earlier than usual. Most analysts say this is a calibrated move intended to cut out harder to reach populations, minorities in particular. Additionally, analysts say gerrymandering wouldn't be a problem on Mars. Let's hope. So, what do we do? Well, Will, there's a lot to fix. Voter ID, intimidation, purging, and suppression have countless solutions. Feel free to check out the work that FairVote has done if you're curious, but we're going to be focusing on some of the newer suggestions that have been put forth to improve voter efficacy and engagement. We also aren't going to be talking about Trump suggesting that we should delay the election. It's not worth our time, and it's certainly not worth your time. Simple answer, he can't. That's Congress. Let's take a page from the book of our fellow friends down under. Australia boasts voter turnouts of over 90%. This is, at least in part, due to the fact that voting is compulsory there. You vote or you get fined. Would it work here? Well, I don't, I don't, think, re I, I don't think mandatory voting is possible in the United States because it um, just so kind of flies in our faces of personal freedom. Look, if we can't make people put on masks to save other people's lives, we're not going to force people to go and vote um, because some other people think it would be a good idea. I, I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think that's going to work. Okay, okay. That was worth a try. Let's take it a step down. How about this? At John Lewis's eulogy, Barack Obama urged us to consider making Election Day a national holiday. What are your thoughts? What little research I know about um, holidays and turnout suggests that um, having election holidays does not increase turnout. Um, and the reason, the reason is pretty simple. If, if you were given the day off, what would you do with your time? Would you stick around to vote? Or would you go and visit your friends in another town? Um, I, you know, so I, I think that the idea of giving people a day off to vote um, to increase turnout is um, both empirically ungrounded and I think theoretically ungrounded. However, there may be other value, there, there may be other advantages. 
challenges. And we're, we're actually seeing that in this upcoming election, where if election day were a holiday, it would be easier to recruit poll workers, for instance. It would be easier to empty out um, office buildings, large office buildings and schools to have more spacious, socially distanced polling places. So there might be other, I mean, there might, might be other very good reasons for giving either everybody off or, um, you know, public, um, public servants and school teachers and school kids the day off. Um, but I would say that's not to increase, that would not affect turnout, but it could influence and improve the administration of elections by making more spaces available and more people available um, to help run them. Fine then, Dr. Stewart, you win. What then should we do? I do think though in the United States we have one structural disadvantage, which is that we vote on so many things. And if you look at other countries, one of the things that's, that's clear is that Americans, um, yeah, we vote on everything. Um, one, one way of illustrating this is that consider everything on the ballot in a typical year in San Francisco, and the number of things that a San Francisco resident can vote on, and consider the things that are, and, and well, consider all those things on the ballot in San Francisco. All those things are about as numerous as everything that a resident of London will vote for in their lifetime, in that one election. You know, we vote for president and Congress and, you know, senator and house. And we have, of course, that in the state. And then we have that in the county and in the city. And then we might have a sewerage, um, 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 the, you know, the sewerage district board and the community college board and the dog catcher board and the tree warden board and all those things that we vote on. Um, so I, I've kind of puckishly said, you know, if you want, so the other thing, the other thing to do to increase turnout in the United States is stop having so many elections. We should have three elections. You can vote for president, um, or maybe four. You can vote for president, member of Congress, one state legislator, one city councilor. That's all you get. Nothing else. And um, you got to believe that those four um, offices would suddenly become really important and people would turn out to vote for those offices because they would it would be really high stakes. So stop voting for so much and um, stop 18 to 25 year olds from moving around so much. And um, I think um, you, could, um, you could get turnout up um, pretty much. You heard the man. Don't count the elections, make the elections count. And when they do count, turn up and vote. And also, why are we voting on coroners? Two final thoughts. The first, new problems warrant new solutions. Some of the past stuff we've spoken about on The Finch, Dr. Gilbert's covered those too. One day I walked in the lab and they were sitting around a table and they were, had sad faces because they had, you know, recently someone was shot by a police officer in a routine traffic stop. And I said, well, let's do something about it. Let's, let's fix it. Long story short, we created what's called the virtual traffic stop. So let me walk, walk you through the premise of how it works. So let's say, uh, Alex, you take your smartphone, you download this app, 
once you get it, you take a picture of your proof of insurance, your vehicle registration, and um, your driver's license. So those pictures are on your phone, they're in the app. Then you, the car you're gonna drive, you put the make model year in there and color and stuff, and any car you're gonna drive. So now you're driving the car. When the police pull you over, uh, they will have a version of it in their vehicle and they'll bring it up and you open yours and the two will start talking. So then what happens is the police officer's badge ID and picture will be sent to your phone and the documents you have will be sent to their computer. And so now they can see your documents, uh, they can see you and then they press a button and it starts a video conference between you and the officer. So now they can see and hear you. Now, Alex, uh, let's assume that you are 16 years old and your parents now can third party in to the video conference as well. So you have this video conference. So what I call virtual traffic stop is a de-escalation mechanism. So if the officer needs to get out of the car and approach you, they know who you are, what you're doing, why you're going, where you're going, everything before they approach. So it de-escalates the situation between you and the officer. The second, polls are very complex. Don't get complacent, but also don't get cynical. On election day in 2016, the New York Times reported that the likelihood that Hillary Clinton would lose the election was equivalent to an NFL kicker missing a 37-yard field goal, and that there was an 85% chance she would win. Not to put any pressure on any NFL kickers, but I'm a high school kicker myself, and I went to the field and made a 37-yard field goal on the first try. This time around, things do feel a little bit different. Should we believe the polls now? Look, those polls back in 2016 had Clinton up by a point or two in the national popular vote. Um, the polls right now have Biden up by about seven, eight points. Um, and so um, at seven to eight points, um, I gotta believe that Biden really is up on the popular vote. <laughs> and um, um, the question is um, about state polls. I think the state polls, it looks like they're a little better than they used to be. Um, but um, I don't trust any one particular state poll. I would say that, um, and I'm obsessive about looking at all the state polls, as I know a number of people are, that when you do see that poll after poll after poll, that Biden is, is up in all the battleground states from 2016, and that he's even in a number of red states like Georgia and Texas, um, then, and, and even in Ohio, um, then you have to believe that this really is a much um, weaker um, year for, for Trump. Regardless of what the polls say, rest assured this election will be unprecedented. For past and new infringements and new solutions, we'll see you guys in November. Regardless of how you vote, please verify your ballot. In Georgia, if you're voting on a ballot marking device when it prints, look at it. Make sure it has your choices. Uh, so attend, you know, take some responsibility to verify what your, uh, your ballot is saying. So that's the biggest advice I can give you moving forward. And hopefully the voter pass uh, system will be out there and I would encourage you to use that so you can have social distancing if you're voting in person. So uh, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. It was fun to do this interview. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Finch. Feel free to email us at contact at the if you have any questions or suggestions. 
Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Finch Podcast, and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this episode. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Fill out your census, register to vote, and make sure you keep listening to The Finch. This was Extempore 4. University of Georgia plans to get back to in-person classes by August. Public schools here in California are expected to stay closed for the rest of the school year. Battle now over reopening schools. That's intensifying as millions of households prepare for their kids to go back to the classroom. And we are getting a look at what some students are facing in those hallways. He expected to cancel the 2020 college football season, the historic move stemming from concerns related to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. It's a growing number of students say they're not getting the college experience they paid for from closed campuses.